Good morning, Midtown. I'm so thankful to be back with you all today. Uh, Josh and John have been so kind to invite me back, and uh, we're just so happy to, to be here and to open God's Word together. As you heard, my name is Sam Kreitz. I'm a church planting resident at Harvest, and Lord willing, uh, with some of my team members here here today, we're going to be planting a church in College Station, Texas. So you can be praying for us. We need it. You can pray uh, for logistics. Our, it is a complicated thing to move multiple families across multiple states. Uh, you can pray for um, the kids in the transition, that they would... Uh, transition well, that they would connect with their school, they would find friends. You can pray for our church. We need elders. We need godly men who are going to shepherd God's people. And we need a people. We need soft hearts in College Station who will respond to the gospel. So we ask you to pray for us. We ask you um, to partner with us in that. Turn with me today. We're going to be in Psalm 40. As you're turning there, uh, I'm going to pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who delivers us, a God who hears us, who has provided our way of escape, and who has given us a beautiful song to sing, to proclaim the goodness of your mighty deeds. We pray, Father, that today that you would give me the words to speak, that that the people would have the hearts to listen and that your spirit would make it effective. We pray this for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. To fully understand the context of Psalm 40, we must understand that it is actually a psalm that's in series with two other psalms, Psalm 38 and Psalm 39. They are somewhat of a trilogy in the text. So to actually get the runway necessary to jump into Psalm 40, we're going to jump back really quick and take a look at Psalm 38. Look with me at Psalm 38, verses 1 to 2. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. David is facing discipline from the Lord. The reason for this discipline is uncertain. The text does not necessarily say, but what is certain is how it has affected him. It is clearly a physical discipline. It is certainly because of his own sin. And we can see as we continue in verse 3 that there is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All day I go about mourning, for my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. David has sinned against the Lord. He has been laid out by a physical ailment that is very severe. It is so severe that it has bowed him down in pain and laid him flat. It has driven away all of his friends and family and has given his enemies an opportunity to take advantage of him. We see this in verse 12. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I am like a deaf man. I do not hear. 
like a mute man who does not open his mouth, I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. The sickness has caused David such pain that he is unable to counteract the political machinations of his enemies. They are getting the upper hand. They are free to lay traps and plot his ruin, and he is so incapacitated that he might as well be deaf and dumb. In this pitiful estate, David cries to the Lord for deliverance. It's the Lord's discipline that has brought this calamity upon him, and it is only the Lord's mercy that will be able to free him. So David writes Psalm 39 to confess to the Lord his iniquities and finishes the psalm by saying this, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes of sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Salah. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. For I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. What we need to see is that David recognizes his own transgressions. He understands that the Lord has brought this upon him to bring to light his sin. These hostilities of the Lord have spent him and he has reached the end of himself. You can see in verse 11 that David held things dear that were ungodly, that needed to be removed from his life. Now it is also important to note that while David has repented and David has asked for deliverance, it has not yet come. At the end of Psalm 39, he is still waiting on the Lord. But in the midst of the pain, what has he found? He has found hope. And that hope is the ground upon which he asked the Lord for deliverance. So we close out Psalm 39 with David begging the Lord to be delivered from discipline and hopefully waiting for the Lord to deliver him. So let's read Psalm 40. Together we shall see God does deliver him. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. This is the very word of God. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds, your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them. Yet there are mo they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will Oh my God, your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O oh Lord. 
I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evil have, evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Please be seated. The Lord certainly heard David's cry, and he was faithful to deliver him from the disciplinary consequences of his sinful actions. So here's our main point for today, for this morning. The deliverance of God requires us to trust him and proclaim his salvation. The big point, the thing that you can write down and take away, is the deliverance of God requires us to trust him and proclaim his salvation. To see the main idea in Psalm 40, I want to draw your attention to two actors in the text. The first person acting in the text is God. The second actor in the text are all men. We will see multiple groups of men doing various things, but first we will see what God has done. So the first thing, we see, so we will see actually three things that the Lord does in the text on behalf of David. The first thing that God did was that he heard David. Look back with me at verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined his ear to me and he heard my cry. In the midst of David's suffering, God heard his cry for deliverance. As we left Psalm 39, wondering if the Lord would hear, wondering if the Lord would, would deliver, we open Psalm 40 and we see that in fact he has heard. He has heard David. Our God is a listening God. Isn't that good news, brothers and sisters? He hears you. He's not a God far off and uninterested. He did not create this world as some master craftsman wind it up and leave it to its own devices. He is providentially caring for every one of us, for every aspect of his creation. He is working all of history toward his own end and he is present to his people. When his people cry to him, he leans in, he hears them, and he listens to them. There are people in the room today carrying heavy burdens. Maybe some of you are weary, just plain tired. You have worked hard this week, and the pile before you does not seem smaller. Or maybe you have really had, you've had a really hard family situation. There's a, a family member you just don't know how to reconcile with. You don't know what to do with them. 
Maybe you've stumbled into sin this week. Maybe you're like David, and despite your best efforts, you are reaping the rewards of your own sinfulness, and you feel burdened. Know, brothers and sisters, that you have a God who hears you, who's near to you. Let me encourage you. He is near, and he wants to hear you cry to him like David cried to him. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. He heard David, and he will hear you. The first thing that God did was he listened to David. The second thing God did was that he delivered David out of his misery. Look at the second half of verse 2. I mean, sorry, just verse 2. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. Our God is a deliverer, amen? Amen. The pit of destruction and the miry bog that David found himself in was not the general wrath of God against his sin. This is David that we're talking about. His anointed one, God's anointed one. The eternal consequences of David's sin have been taken care of. This deliverance is a deliverance from discipline. David deserved this because of his error. This is an important point, church. David was not under the wrath of God against his sin, but under the loving discipline of God. Romans 8.1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What an encouraging verse that is. However, because we have a good father, we should expect to face discipline. And as we can see from these psalms, that discipline can be severe. Why? Because sin is severe. Sin is deadly. It will rot you from the inside out. One of the surest ways to know that you are God's children is if we experience the discipline from our Heavenly Father when we sin. The author of Hebrews says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which we have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. The author of Hebrews teaches us that the Lord disciplines all his children because he loves them, because he's good. It is his goodness that requires him to discipline us. They belong to him, and he cannot allow you to seek satisfaction in things that will not satisfy you. That would make him a bad father. But he is not a bad father. He is a good father. The author of Hebrew also warns us, if you are living in sin, and you do not experience the discipline of the Lord, then you should be concerned. All the church, all the children of the Lord will face his discipline. They will experience it as a good thing, as a corrective thing. 
So if you don't, perhaps you're not a child. If that is you this morning, friend, please consider our first point. The Lord is near to you. The Lord hears the cries of those who call out to him. I would encourage you to turn away from your sin and trust in Jesus to save you from the wrath of God. God delivered David from his discipline. That was God working in his life for David's good. It was only because of the Lord's discipline that David came to the point where he could see God clearly. Which brings us to the third thing that God did. He gave David the ability to respond to his deliverance. Look at verse 3. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. He put a new song in David's mouth, a message to proclaim, so that many will see what it is that God has done. And when they see what God has done on behalf of David, they will put their trust in the Lord. David's song of praise does not originate with David. It originates with God. David's first instinct was not to praise God, but to defend himself. Look with me back at Psalm 31, 39, 1 through 2. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle, so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. See, this is David responding to the discipline before he cried out for the deliverance of the Lord. I think, what we, I think we can all identify with David here. In his flesh, he wanted to defend himself, to give an answer in the face of his enemies. But he, but he didn't. He white-knuckled it. He said to himself, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to add to the list of my sin. I'm going to control myself, and I'm going to suffer quietly. Did it work? The scripture said, I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail and my distress grew worse. Why did it grow worse? Isn't this what waiting on the Lord looks like? Wasn't David saying, all right, God, have it your way. I could defend myself, but I'm not gonna. I'm just going to sit here and take this until I've served my time. Has anyone ever been there? Has anyone ever tried that kind of repentance? I know I have. I know I have. But that's not repentance. No, true repentance does not come from man white-knuckling it, trying to endure the discipline. It, it begins with God. He put a new song in my mouth. He did it. I waited. He delivered. And now I am singing his song, not my song. This is where David came to. He, it grew worse because David had to get to a place where God delivered him, not David. Where God put a new song in his mouth. It wasn't David's song. He was the source of David's ability to respond to what he had done. Why does he do it this way? 
because he gets the glory for the deliverance. When God delivers, it is not primarily for the salvation of the one delivered. God saves to put the beauty of his nature on display. David did not deserve to be delivered. He was under punishment because he sinned. God delivered David so that other people would see God's faithfulness to his covenant love for David. So what have we learned about God? He hears the cry of his people. In his own time, he delivers them. And when he does, he gives people the ability to respond for his own glory so that people will, for other people will see his faithfulness, his trustworthiness, and his goodness. Remember the main idea of our sermon. The deliverance of God requires us to trust him and proclaim his salvation. We have seen how God's deliverance works. So we come to our second point to consider. The role of men in this psalm. Now I said there were going to be multiple men. In this psalm, we will see different men doing different things. First, we'll see David as he sings the message that God has placed in his mouth. And then we will see other men respond to that message. So first, let's look at David proclaiming the message God has given him, beginning in verse 4. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet there are, that they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Now it is not immediately apparent, but how do we know that this is the message David is proclaiming? How do we know that this, these, these five verses are the song that he is singing? At the end of verse 3, David has a new song that God has given him. And when he sings it, people will fear. That is, in the future, at some point, once David has sung the song, they will fear God and put their trust in him. Now read quickly verses 9 and 10. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. It is clear in verses 9 and 10 that David has already sung the song. He was faithful to deliver the message of God's salvation to the great congregation of God's people. So at some point between verse 3 and verses 9 and 10, David proclaimed the message God had put into his mouth. So let's take a look at the content of that message. The first stanza has three basic moves. First, we see in verse 4 that the man that trusts in the Lord is blessed because he does not seek help from proud people who follow after lies. The pride of these individuals shows them to be untruthful because, second point, the deeds of the Lord are self-evidently wondrous and beyond compare. 
They are trustworthy because they actually do deliver. If anyone were to point to another deliverer, they would be liars. Because the end of the, because in the end, no other, ho- uh, no other hope can deliver. Finally, David says that because God's deeds are so wonderful, he will proclaim them even though it is impossible to adequately describe them. Blessed is the man who puts their trust in God. His deeds are wonderful, so wonderful that they cannot be accurately com- proclaimed. What does that sound like? It sounds to me like a personal testimony of what just happened to David. David put his trust in the Lord to be delivered. God did deliver him, and then God gave him a new song to sing. So we see that first stanza. It is a personal testimony of David to all that God has done for him from Psalm 38 through the beginning of Psalm 40. In the second stanza, David tells us what he learned from that experience. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. What has David learned? He has learned that God is not pleased by outward cultic rituals. He does not delight in the sacrifice of animals. This is not something new. This has always been true. You don't have to turn there, but let me read for you Deuteronomy 30, 15 through 20. Just for context, the first generation of Israelites have died after wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And Moses is reconfirming the covenant with this new generation that has replaced them. Verse 15 says, See, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you will surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curses. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land of the Lord, swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. Notice how we obtain life and good. It might seem like obedience and law-keeping are what secure the blessings of the covenant. But that is not what Moses says. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments, then you will get the blessing. But if your heart turns away and you serve other gods, then you will perish. Moses is teaching exactly what Christ taught on the Sermon of the Mount. 
Law keeping was never about keeping the law. It was about guarding the heart. Their obedience was to flow from their affections, not the other way around. David's problem was that his affections became disordered. He thought the world would satisfy him. So God had to discipline him to bring him to the point where he learned that only God could satisfy him. But even though God has made this truth plain in his word, David, the Israelites before him, and we following after him have dull ears. We hear, but we don't hear. Our God speaks and we don't understand. God had to open David's ears. And when he does, he tells David something amazing. A new voice is heard off the stage. Perhaps he is speaking through David or perhaps David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is just repeating what he hears. He says, Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Who is speaking? David's ears now have been opened, but who is speaking? Who is he listening to? It can't be David. David hasn't come. David's already here. David doesn't delight to do the will of God. That is why we are in the predicament to begin with. That's why he needs deliverance. The law of God is not written on David's heart. David was under the old covenant, not the new He had to have the law read to him. It was external from him. So who is this mystery voice? The author of Hebrews tells us that the voice is Christ. In Hebrews 10, verses 5 to 10, he says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offering and sin offerings you have not taken pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifice and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. God did not desire burnt offerings because they cannot satisfy. They were merely placeholders pointing forward to a better sacrifice that was required. This is the basic, it's a basic lesson in the economics of salvation. Sin is an affront against the very glory and holiness of God. The glory and the holiness of God is infinitely valuable. Therefore, when we sin, our sin is infinitely offensive. Bulls and goats are finite. They're finite creatures. Their blood is finite. The finite sacrifices of their blood cannot satisfy the infinite offense of sin. Therefore, the blood of bulls and goats cannot satisfy the wrath of God. The only thing in the universe that is infinitely valuable is God. Christ is 
God. So the blood of Christ is infinitely valuable. Christ had to die so that the infinite value of his blood could satisfy our infinite offense against the glory of a holy God. Since the value of Christ's sacrifice is infinite, it can never be exhausted. It is final, finished, once for all. That is good news. Brothers and sisters, that is good news. So, as we look at the deeds of men, the first thing we see men doing in the psalm is we see David proclaiming this good news in verses 4 to 8. His proclamation is mandatory because we see David give an account in verses 9 through 10 to the Lord for the message that he received. But it was also David's joy. It is a glad song, he says, that makes David glad because the discipline of the Lord has stripped away all the lesser loves in David's life. Remember, Psalm 39, 11, David said, When you discipline a man with with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. The Lord stripped away these lesser delights so that David longed for one thing, God to deliver him. He saw clearly how miserable and empty these lesser promises were so that when the Lord delivered him and gave him a way to respond by proclaiming this new song, it was David's obligation, but it was more truly David's great delight because those lesser loves had been burned away in discipline. Which brings us to the second thing that we see men doing in this psalm. We are going to see three different groups of people respond to the gospel David has proclaimed. Remember this, remember this church, whenever someone proclaims their gospel, there has to be a response. The gospel demands a response. It can be positive or negative, but no one can simply ignore the gospel. To ignore the gospel is to reject the gospel. So the second thing that we will see men do in the psalm is respond to David's proclamation of the gospel. The first person to respond to the gospel is David himself. Look at verse 11. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Again, we hear David's cry to the Lord. But this time, it is not a cry for deliverance. It is a cry for preservation. Preservation from his own sinfulness. This is a crucial lesson. Christian, when you proclaim the gospel, your own sinful flesh will rebel against you. Remember Paul in Galatians 5, 16 and 17. He says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. When David proclaimed the new song of praise that God put into his mouth, his own flesh rebelled against him. The flesh hates the gospel. Why? 
Because the gospel kills the flesh. Church, let us be warned. When you feel close to God, when you are conquering new territory for the kingdom of God, when you are putting your daily trust in God, this is not the time to relax in contentment. This is the time to be vigilant. You are not home yet. You might have won a skirmish for the kingdom here and there, but the enemy is still prowling around like a roaring lion, and he will attack you through your flesh. Those that advance the front lines are the ones that he shoots at. And one of the primary ways he shoots at Christians is their own evil desires. David understood this. So he asked God to preserve him with his steadfast love and faithfulness. Beloved, please know, the flesh is your enemy. Your own flesh is your enemy. And it will try to cut your throat when you least expect it. The second reaction to the gospel we see from men is in verses 13 and 15. David says, Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who sneak to satch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. David might have been delivered from the discipline of the Lord, but those enemies who are plotting against him in Psalm 38 are still out there trying to take advantage of him. They are still trying to take both political advantage of him and they are also the enemies of the Lord. There's more going on here. These are not merely political rivals. These are also enemies of the gospel. How do we know this? We can see it in verse 16. But... May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. The most important word for understanding verses 13 and 15, 13 through 15, is that first word in verse 16. But, but tells us that the subject of verse 16 is to be contrasted with the subject of verses 13 through 15. The subject of verse 16 is all who seek you. That is, all those who love your salvation. So by contrast, the, enemy and the enemies in verses 13 and 15 do not seek the Lord. They do not love the salvation of the Lord. They are not just David's political enemies. They are God's enemies. So how does David deal with these scoundrels? He brings them to the Lord in prayer. Church, it is not up to us to defend ourselves. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. David sets our example, and Paul gives us practical applications. Pray for your enemies. They're not merely enemies of you. They're enemies of the Lord. And overcome them with good. What good can you do to them? You can share the gospel with them. You can show them 
that the end of their evil ways will only result in their destruction and they need the same deliverer that you have found. The third group that reacts to the gospel that we have already seen by way of contrast is in verse 16. It is the response of those who seek the Lord and love his salvation when they hear the gospel preached. They respond in joy, gladness, and praise to the greatness of our Lord. This is why we gather on Sunday mornings to corporately enjoy our profound gladness to hear the gospel and to respond to God with praise and thanksgiving. Is that not what we've done this morning? Has this service not been an opportunity for us to read the gospel together, to hear the gospel preached, to sing the gospel to one another, to see the gospel when we do the ordinances? We are those who love the salvation of the Lord. We are those who respond to the gospel being preached with joy and gladness and praise to our God. So sing loudly. So participate fervently. Let this time be a time where we have a love feast over the goodness of our God. But this is not all that we learn about this group. This last group gives us a little bit more. In verse 17, David says, As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. David is included in this last group. And here we see him returning to his need for the Lord to deliver him. This time, however, the deliverance is not from the discipline of the Lord. This deliverance is forward-looking to a day that is rapidly approaching when the Lord will completely and finally deliver David. The gospel is a message of hope, of promises made but not yet fulfilled. For David, that promise was his greater and truer son that would come to be his deliverer. For us, it is a farther point in the future. We have seen Jesus Christ. We know him, David's son. The one that David looked forward to, we know. We have his spirit resident inside of us. But we look forward to a day when he will take us home. Just like David, we are poor and needy, saying to God, do not delay. Deliver us from even the presence of sin. We, as the church, look forward to that day and we ask him to come quickly. This morning we have seen how Psalm 40 is a wonderful song of deliverance, of the deliverance of God. But the deliverance of God requires something from those he delivers. It requires us to trust him as the one who has already delivered us and who will deliver us in the future. It also requires us to proclaim the hope of his future deliverance to those who are stuck in that miry bog. Let's end with a quote. I, I love Augustine, and he makes this, he just puts this beautifully. What is this pit of misery? The murky depth of iniquity to which carnal lust consign us. That is why he calls it slimy mud. From where did he lead you out? From a deep place. So that explains your cry in another psalm. Out of the depths I have cried to you, Lord. 
Psalm 131. We must notice this though. People who are already crying out from a deep place cannot entirely be sunk in it, for their cry is already beginning to lift them. Others, however, are more deeply immersed in the mire because they do not even realize that they are in the depths. These are the proud, scornful folk, not the devout who pray, nor the tearful ones who cry out, but those of whom the scripture elsewhere says, a person devoid of reverence goes deep into sin and is defiant. In such a case, it would not matter so much that he or she is a sinner. Far worse is his determination not to confess his sins, but to defend them. And this sinks him deeper. There are people out there still stuck in the swamp of sin. And in their rebellion, they do not know the joy of deliverance. They sink deeper and deeper into their selfish rebellion against God. And they love it. Their only hope is the gospel that we have heard this morning. A deliverer who will save them from their situation. Their only hope is a church who has been delivered and has had a new song put into their mouth to sing at the top of their lungs the wondrous deeds of the one who delivered them. Let's pray. Father, you are a good God, a good Father who disciplines his children because he loves them, who delivers his children because he cares for them. Father, I pray that this message would go deep into our hearts, that we would feel the obligation to proclaim what we have experienced in Christ, to proclaim the salvation that we have experienced through your Son. But also, Father, I pray that it would be our joy, our joy to carry such a message to those who are stuck in that swamp of sin, who do not know what it is to love the God of the universe, who loves them. I pray that we would be your instruments, your church, to carry the good news of your gospel to the ends of the earth. We pray this for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We're now going to sing a stead... Christ the sure and Christ the sure and steady anchor. <laughs> Christ the sure and steady anchor. Christ the sure and steady anchor that is um, the anchor for us when we are cast about in the sea. Our scripture today said that God has raised us out of the miry bog and set us on the rock. Well, the rock of a ship is its ballast. When the waves crash against the ship, the ballast that goes deep into the into the water, balances the ship out so it is not turned over. Christ is our rock. Christ is our ballast. He is our assurance, and we will sing to him. <laughs>